You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. Um, Man, so good to be here with you guys. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you are tuning in online, uh, thank you for tuning in. Um, My name is Tamarcus Ragland. I'm the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. And as always, it's just a pleasure to be able to open up God's word with you all. Um, We have been in a series called Wisdom and Wonder for a while. And last week, uh, we took a turn to see exactly what wisdom uh, has to say to us about marriage. And it's important to point out that as we look, you know, in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere in Scripture, it primarily uses marriage as a metaphor of our relationship uh, to wisdom and or folly. When it talks about marriage, it is almost always talking about more than marriage, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's talking about less than marriage. And so as we look at uh, the Proverbs and in the scripture we just read and uh, throughout scripture, we want to mind that metaphor for what it has to say about marriage and hold on to that, that it might grant us wisdom um, in our marriage. And to do that, we're going to be walking through a a definition of marriage uh, that that paints a picture of what that looks like biblically. Uh, Jamin gave it to us last week. I'll repeat it again. It'll be on the screen behind me. That marriage is a God-given, covenant-keeping, intimate friendship. And while Jamin covered the uh, God-given part last week, I'm going to be talking about the covenant-keeping part this morning. My wife, Chrissy, and I, Uh, have been married happily for over seven years now, and something that has become a great joy uh, to the both of us, I think it was always her joy, it has grown to be a joy of mine, is getting to attend weddings. Um, And specifically, as I've gotten to um, officiate them uh, more and more, I've just grown to just appreciate the beauty of the ceremony. And rather, it's been weddings for family and friends, or former youth group students, and they've been large weddings, they've been in small weddings, all of them have have left some sort of impression on us in various different ways. Um, And there's one singular way that all of them have left the same impression on us. And that is every wedding we attend tends to take us back to our own, right? Like every time I get to watch, you know, I look at a groom as he beholds his bride walking down the aisle adorned for the first time, it just, it reminds me of when I got to watch Chrissy walk down the aisle uh, for the first time. She had a a couple manly tears, right? Um, It also reminds me of uh, going to the reception. You know, we get to eat good cake and eat good food. It takes me back to my own reception when I didn't get any of my groom's cake because it was eaten all before I got there. Um, And I'm still a little bit salty about it. And it also reminds me, right, as I get to listen to the vows being read and the commitment that's being made and the way that uh, the husband and wife are vowing to to serve one another selflessly um, for the rest of their lives before Christ. It reminds me of the vows I myself made to my wife and she to me. And it always, we always just leave being brought back to those moments. And so in one way or another, right, a great way to sum that up is beholding a covenant always reminds us of our own covenant. And this is what's so ironic about the way that Proverbs uses this image of marriage as a metaphor, because in reality, every marriage is this way, right? Every marriage points back to the ultimate covenant. And it is this true covenant that actually empowers us to keep our own. And so in our time this morning, I want to unpack 
uh, two ways that this concept of covenant keeping can transform the way we view and experience marriage. And it is in these two statements. One, it corrects a conditional view of marriage. And secondly, it counsels a hopeless view of marriage. It corrects a conditional view and it counsels a hopeless view. But before we go into all of that, we got to define our terms some. Uh, covenant isn't a word that we use in everyday uh, vernacular nowadays, especially outside of our Christian circles. Like if you were chatting with one of your neighbors and you were to ask them, you know, so how's your covenant going these days? They might look at you kind of strange, right? And like, is that a new HOA policy that I missed? I, I didn't get that and I'm not paying the fees either. Uh, and it's like, even, even though it's a foreign term to our culture, uh, it is a pivotal idea in our Bibles. Like if someone was to ask you, uh, what is one of the best ways to describe the way God relates to his people? Really good arguments could be made that the best way to put that in one word is through a covenant. And here's a work of definition of covenant as we continue to unpack how we learn it from God himself. A covenant is a binding obligation and a decisive promise to bless and serve someone in a specific way, no matter what. Now, covenants can be conditional or unilateral, meaning one way. So the, the blessing can be in exchange for something else, or it can simply be given. And when God entered into relationship uh, with his people through covenant, he guarantees that he will remain constant in character and action towards them unilaterally. In Genesis 15, God entered into covenant with Abraham, and right as they were finishing preparing uh, the, the, the metrics for the, gov- uh, for the covenant, Abraham falls into a deep sleep, and it says that a, a boiling pot and a, and a flame of fire passed uh, through the sacrifice, and this was God's way of sealing his covenant and putting it all on himself, that he would promise to confirm his promise despite the way his people did or did not act. This is why Paul can rightly say about God to Timothy, when we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And again, in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. Oftentimes, we simply talk of covenant as a contract, But we see in these passages, there is a permanence and a binding reality to a covenant that is not like our understanding of contract, right? Like contracts can be revised, they can be nullified, they can be broken, renegotiated um, without cost even sometimes. This is not the case with the covenant, the way God enters into covenant with his people as we've seen. For all my peoples that are in the men and women's Bible study class, remember in Exodus uh, 2.24, It says God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people of Israel had been oppressed in Egypt for 400 years, just as God had promised would happen. He had told to Abraham and God remembered and confirmed his covenant to his people and began to deliver them. You see, every time the scriptures points to this covenant that God made to Abraham, it is reminding us of that unilateral, unconditional covenant-keeping love that God was initiating with him and continuing to sustain through all of his people. We see it again in Psalm 105, 8 through 10. He says, he has remembered his covenant forever. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, 
the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed to Jacob for a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, everlasting. And this is what we find to be continuously true throughout the entire Bible. God reveals himself to be a covenant keeping God to his people. And this is what that means. He remembers and confirms his promises despite their lack of faith and disobedience, extending steadfast love and compassion and mercy and grace again and again to a stubborn and a wayward people. Now, conversely, the best way to talk about the way God relates to his people and his faithfulness to us is through this covenant-keeping relationship that he initiates. Another thing that the Bible shows is that the best way to depict our unfaithfulness to that covenant is through covenant breaking. If you look at Proverbs 2, 16 through 17, this is speaking about lady wisdom or lady folly. It says, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Here Solomon uses this image of infidelity in marriage to describe uh, the utter faithlessness and destructiveness of Lady Folly. Folly makes big promises, and she never keeps them. Right? There's nothing binding about what she has uh, promised to give to us. And Solomon goes on to say, because of that, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. All who follow in her way not only have their covenants with her broken, but they also tend to break covenants themselves. We see this later on in Malachi 2, 13 through 14. He uses this same construction, but here God is speaking through the prophet uh, Malachi, and he is speaking specifically to the unfaithfulness of the people in their marriages and to him. And the second thing you do The Bible says, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Some translations say treacherous, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see, God is the faithful spouse We, his people, are unfaithful spouses, and he remembers his covenants to us still and extends his love and his grace. Some may be thinking, okay, to Marcus, last week, Jameis showed us this really pretty picture of, like, mountains and this warm, cozy cabin. Like, when are we going to get back to those vibes? Um, And I promise that's coming. Uh, But we must, right, there's a, there's a gem of wisdom in these passages that we have to mine in order to understand the, the essence of the kind of covenant keeping that God is calling us to and he has first demonstrated um, for us. And here's what we need to see about the covenants that we're, we enter into based on what God has done. Integral to any covenant keeping marriage is a flourishing covenant keeping relationship with God. Lady Folly forsakes her husband because she forgets her God. Why? Because every marriage is a little C covenant that is ultimately pointing to the big C covenant that God is keeping with us. Just as we read prior uh, to the sermon in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, marriage, is profound, and I'm saying that it, marriage, refers 
to Christ and the church. We learn what it means to be covenant-keeping people by first being the recipients of covenant-keeping love of our God. Marriage is a covenant, and as such, it has the potential and is designed to display that kind of love to the world. But it's not the only way to display that love to the world. To my single friends in the room, whether you are hoping to one day be married on your way to being married, have no plans of being married, have re-entered a state of marriage by losing a spouse, if you know, love, trust, and obey Jesus, you too have been made recipients of this covenant-keeping love that he extends to his people. And you have been commissioned to display that love to the world around you. See, God first displayed that love to, the, to Abraham as an individual, and then to his family, and then later to a nation. Then through the one man, Jesus Christ, he displayed it to his disciples and to the many. And while the relationships looked different all throughout, the love that was displayed was all the same. And this is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 7, both singleness and marriage are gifts from God in, in their own way. One is not superior to the other, but we need both of them because they, differently, they give different perspectives and help us to better see how wide and how deep and how long is the love of God. Okay, with all that being said, the first thing we need to learn about covenant keeping, how it reshapes the way we understand marriage, is it corrects a conditional view of marriage. Um, our culture, uh, believe it or not, I think is actually quite enamored with the idea of marriage. I know sometimes we can think that marriage is like going away, and I don't think the idea of marriage is going away, but the, the picture that is painted of marriage is, is a little different, right? We could see this in, in the media. If you look at some of the popular TV shows that are particularly interested in marriage, it's quite interesting, right? I'm just list a few. Um, there's a show called Love is Blind, right? Where couples try to find a mate without ever seeing them face to face, right? Or The Ultimatum, uh, where couples, uh, before they're married, they agree to this, give each other this ultimatum that either by the end of this experiment, we're going to be married or we're going to be with somebody else or we're going to leave here alone. There's this other one called Law and Order, where couples come. That was just to see if you, was, you were tracking. All right. No, this last one, right? This last one is, is, is the, the wildest one. Married at first sight. Um, the description that I found online is just so good, you just need to, you gotta indulge it for a second. This is, you can Google it. Uh, it says, the cart comes way before the horse in this reality series, Married at First Sight. Based on a hit Danish format, Married, it features people who agreed to participate in an extreme experiment. Each covenants legal marriage with a complete stranger. Specialists, including spiritualists, a relationship coach, and a sociologist use scientific matchmaking to determine each couple who will not have met or had any contact prior to their wedding day. The series then documents closely the relationship, including the honeymoon and other relatable uh, events of married life. Here's the kicker. And after several weeks, each couple must decide rather to remain together or to go their individual ways. Here's the thing. Uh, this isn't a knock on arranged marriages. Uh, there's, there's plenty of different cultures and places and times that have went about initiating marriage in different ways, and that's great. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite marriage stories in the Bible is Isaac and Rebecca's, and it was an arranged marriage. Um, 
I, you know, Rebecca comes, they hadn't met each other prior to, Rebecca comes to Isaac on a horse, and you know, he sees her, they go into the tent, they give each other a big hug, and then they're married, right? Um, and it's beautiful, and the Lord blesses it. This is not that. What we see described, right, what's so deplorable about what they just described in this show is depicting marriage as if it's, right, they claim that it's this covenant marriage, and then after several weeks, you get to decide whether you want to remain in this covenant marriage. In a true covenant-keeping marriage, it isn't this extreme experiment that you enter into only to later on down the road decide whether you want to keep the covenant or not. Entering into a covenant means that you have already decided at the onset. It's not an extreme experiment. It's an extreme commitment. What this show actually promotes is not covenant-keeping at all, but a conditional view of marriage. And while the show might make a mockery of it, it is real deep hurt that arises when we take this conditional view of marriage um, as a true view. You see, when we view marriage conditionally rather than freely extending uh, the kind of covenant-keeping love that we received from God, we attach a price tag to our love. And that price tag normally sounds something like this. I'll cherish you if I feel like you're cherishing me. I'll cherish you once you get your mess together and get everything in order. Or I'll, I'll cherish you when, uh, until it doesn't benefit me anymore. And there's a number of other voices and ways that it uh, creeps out and where all of those voices seem to find their harmony is ultimately in something like this. I'll cherish you when you've earned it and it feels good. Here's the danger of that kind of view of marriage. If our love has to be earned in that way, our spouses will never be able to afford it. If your love has to be earned that way, our spouses will never be able to afford it. The conditional view of marriage requires perfection, and none of us are that. But if our view of marriage is shaped and marked by covenant keeping, and our love is not something that is earned, but something that, is that we decide to give, hear me, our spouses don't have to be perfect to receive our love, but by God's grace, they can be perfected through our love. What do I mean by that? God is ultimately at work in our lives through the power of the Spirit, conforming us into the image of Christ day in and day out. And it is in his sovereignty that he has chosen, if you are married, to use your spouse as a part of your sanctification process and vice versa them to you. We aren't uh, waiting on each other to change before we start to extend our love, but we extend our love unconditionally so that both of us might be changed through it. Cherishing changes us. The conditional view of marriage, it completely atrophies this very aspect of marriage and what it's meant to accomplish in our lives. Jameis said something really beautiful last week. I want to repeat it again. He said, love, love doesn't wear off like the shine of a new toy. Love withers like a garden someone stopped tending. Covenant keeping is a binding obligation and a decisive promise to tend the garden for the rest of your life. No good gardener looks at their flower bed and says, oh, there's weeds in it now, and then turns away from it. No, a good gardener rolls up his sleeves, gets down on his knees, and he tends to the garden and beautifies it. The same way every beautiful yard you've driven by and seen implies a skilled gardener behind it, 
Every healthy and happy marriage that we see does not just happen. It wasn't just by chance. It is by two individuals who have committed to tend the garden for the rest of their lives. G.K. Chesterton has this, this beautiful quote that captures that idea, right? He says that there's this great lesson that we learn from Beauty and the Beast, that a thing must be loved before it's lovable. Again, cherishing changes us. And it's when we cherish our spouse that we actually, by God's grace, allow him to do work in them and in us. Feelings come and go. Emotions will rise and fall and they change with the, with the, with the seasons. But cherishing is a choice. And we can decide to cherish. Marriage's covenant keeping does not demand constant satisfaction on our behalf in order for us to extend our love, but it demonstrates a committed servanthood by choosing to cherish despite how we feel. I said earlier how much my wife and I uh, enjoyed going to weddings and I officiating them. And in almost every wedding that I've got to officiate, I've tried to find a way to work in this quote from Timothy Keller only because his book on the meaning of marriage is just so good, and my hope is that everyone will read it one day. Um, And it's a long quote, but it's beautiful and it's worth reading, if you would indulge it with me. He says, our culture says that feelings of love are the basis for actions of love. And of course that can be true, but it is truer to say that actions of love can lead consistently to feelings of love. In any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is a covenant, a commitment, and a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do the acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You might not always feel tender, compassionate, and understanding, or compassionate and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and caring. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and less deep. And you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what happens when you decide to love. The deep happiness that marriage brings lies on the far side of sacrificial love by the power of the Spirit. And that means you only discover your own happiness after each of you has put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own in a sustained way in response to what Jesus has done for you. End of sermon, let's pray. All right? This is what it looks like to cherish unconditionally. Now, some might say, I hear you, right? But but being tender when I don't feel tender, isn't that just being fake? Like, I want to I wanna be, I wanna be real in extending my love, right? Or are you just saying that when things are hard, I should just sweep it under the rug and put on a smile? Like, is that how we get past it? And those are great questions, and that is not what I mean. So I want to say two things to both of those uh, thoughts. One, doing unconditional covenant-keeping actions towards your spouse, even when you don't feel like it, is not called being fake. It's called being faithful. Right? You are keeping your word and doing what you promised to do at the moment you initiated your marriage and continuing to sustain for good or for bad, for better or for worse. Secondly, being tender and forgiving and understanding doesn't mean that we never address problems in our marriage or that we just sweep things under the rug. But rather, even in our conflict resolution, it ought to be marked and shaped by a kind of covenant-keeping love. 
It means we aren't just trying to nag at one another, but we are trying to nourish and help one another look more like Christ. We aren't just trying to win fights, but we're trying to woo one another's hearts, helping each other towards what's true and what's right. So even in the difficulty, we're still looking back to the way God loves and cherishes us, even in our moments of waywardness. Okay, I felt obligated in preparation to to add this very important charge here as well. If you would, for a second, just reach back with me to Ephesians 5, right? Many of us are familiar with this popular passage on marriage. Um, It it, it calls um, husbands and wives to this this beautiful union for wives to respect their husbands um, like a church, like the church, and for husbands to love their wives like Christ loves his church. And if we can just put all that together, here's what that means for the husbands in the room, and I'm preaching to myself as well. We ought to be the chief cherishers in our home. We set the tone for cherishing in our home. If your wife is with you, look at her. She is a gift, a precious gift to you from God. Indeed, one never hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Cherish her like the daughter of the king she is. This unconditional cherishing that covenant keeping calls us to indeed goes both ways. And the reality is that it is um, most needed in our marriages often when it is the most difficult to extend it. And even then we are called to set the tone in our homes the same way Christ has set the tone in our relationship with him. And this is where our second point comes in. Not only does covenant keeping correct a conditional view of marriage, but it also counsels a hopeless view of marriage. And here's what I mean by that. Um, earlier, I, I read in the Timothy Keller quote, in any relationship, there will be frightening spells where feelings of love dry up, right? But there can be points in marriages where the season seems to turn into seasons and it feels like a lifetime, right? And there's, there's things that you just come into a stalemate and it seems like you can't cover any ground, and you don't know where to begin, and it doesn't seem like anything is working, you don't know where to start, and it's like it starts to just feel hopeless. And it's like, where do, where do we go from here? How can we make an effort? Where, where is the change going to come from? And what's often missing in this, in this place, right, is an anchor. And so the only thing that the marriage has to cling on to, the only thing that we have to grasp to shape our actions and our thoughts towards one another is the the shifting and the movement of the moment. If you were to go down to Lake Ray Hubbard uh, after a DFW thunderstorm and you found a few boats that had drifted from the dock and a few that had stayed properly docked, the truth would be all of the boats suffered the storm. Just as every marriage suffers storms, whether it's the waves of disagreement or the rushing winds of financial trouble or the turbulence of lost affection, right? Whatever the cause might be, while the storms and situations may vary, just like the boats that went adrift from their proper place, marriages don't go adrift because of the presence of a storm, but because of the absence of an anchor. I don't know every story in the room, but if any of that resonates, Covenant keeping has a few words of encouragement, even for that place. See, because marriage is a covenant, 
Um, the relationship is not dependent upon the moments of difficulty and unhappiness. These don't have to define nor drive your marriage, but your covenant will anchor you where the circumstances won't. How? Because integral to the idea of covenant keeping in the Bible, as we read earlier, is remembering. Not looking around at what's happening in the moments, but looking back and ultimately looking up. But what exactly do we need to look to? What is it exactly that we need to remember? Listen to God's word through the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 54, verse 5, he says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. And the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Here's the thing about this text. God had every right to desert us and not gather us. God had every right to hide his face and to not show compassion towards us. We were rightly objects of his anger and his wrath, and yet with everlasting love, he had compassion towards us. What we experience and learn from God's covenant-keeping love towards us is that when we were most deserving of his distancing from us because of his binding obligation and his decisive promise to bless and to serve his people, he moved towards us and his covenant of peace was not removed from us. When we look around and we struggle to find anything in our marriage to hold on to and to give us ground, when the breakers of the storm seem to be rattling the boat, look up. Look to the beautiful God that anchors you and your marriage and remember his covenant-keeping love for you, his grace and his mercy towards you when you are most undeserving of it. Is that not when God's love was the most beautiful? That's why Paul says in Romans 5, 8, for God showed his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died. He displayed his best when we were at our worst. And here's the thing, whether you are married or single, it is this same anchor clinging to the superior, ultimate love of Christ in your life that keeps you in the midst of the storm. Rachel Gilson in her book, Born Again This Way, Coming Out, Coming to Faith, and What Comes Next, describes how it is, uh, why it is so important that Christ be the chief love in our hearts. And in so doing, we gain strength and we testify to the superiority of Christ in our lives. This is what she writes. To choose celibacy, Jesus must be really precious to you. What a chance to testify that he is. What an opportunity to call into question the narrative of salvation by romance and to point to what all love dimly reflects. And not just with words, but like an Old Testament prophet with your life. 
you only give up something awesome for something even better. No matter your relationship status in the room, what Rachel Gilson has described beautifully in this passage is while all of our battles might look different, the weapons are the same. What will anchor us in our singleness and the same, is the same thing that will anchor us through the storms of marriage. It is clinging tightly to the covenant-keeping love of Christ. So just as she describes Celebi as a chance to testify that Christ is most precious to you, husband, for you to give your wife the kind of covenant-keeping love you've been called to give, you must love Jesus more and be anchored in his love for you, remembering that on the days that she's not at her best, God has placed you in her life to still be a constant gospel presence, always pointing her back to what is true and what is good, gifting your love at all times because Christ has done the same thing for you. Wives, for you to give your husband this kind of covenant-keeping love, you must love Jesus more and you must be anchored in his love for you. Remembering that on the days he's not at his best, God has placed you in his life to be a constant gospel presence, always pointing him back to what is true and gifting him your love at all times because Christ has done the same for you. When marriage feels like it is at its worst, what an opportunity to testify that Christ is most precious to you. Marriage's covenant doesn't conform to the moment, but it cherishes despite the circumstance. We choose to cherish in a dry season, not because we feel like it, not because our spouse has earned it, not because it's easy, but because we remember, first and foremost, God has chosen to cherish us despite of us. And because we have decided and are obligated to cherish our spouses, fulfilling the commitment. And that may not sound like a super romantic way to go about marriage, but in all actuality, it is this kind of anchored, gritty, self-sacrificial, committed love that cultivates deep and abiding affection in any marriage. Before we close our time this morning, I feel uh, just burdened to acknowledge uh, a few things after all that was said. The danger of speaking to a room like this about something as intimate and near to the chest as marriage is that it is nearly impossible to say everything that needs to be said in order to, you know, hit every unique situation. But I just I have to provide some nuance um, out of fear that anything that I could have said will be used as words to wound rather than tools to tend. So some of you in the room, maybe you feel the, the pain of having been cherishing and having been tending all alone for a very long time. And all of your tending and all of your cherishing has only been met with abuse and carelessness. And if that's you, I just want you to know your faithfulness and your pain is not lost on God. Moreover, you have a church family that loves you and cares deeply about you and wants to be able to walk alongside you. Would you just allow us to be able to do that as well? And maybe for others, it's a little more complex or a little less complex than that. Maybe it's a little more or less severe than that. And wherever you fall on the spectrum, here's what's true. Whether you are struggling to hang on to your covenant with tears or looking back on a broken covenant with grief, what you need to know more than anything and what is available to you today is the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever covenant-keeping love of Christ. No matter what the storms of life have wrought on your relationship, 
there remains an anchor for your life. And his name is Jesus, and there is no pain that he can't heal, and there is no shame that he cannot remove. To everyone else, as much as it is in your power to do so, I beg you this morning, remember the covenant-keeping love of your God that has been unconditionally lavished upon you, and let it anchor you. Let it anchor your life. Let it anchor your marriage. And from that place, remember your covenant. Remember the promise that you made. Remember the vows that you committed to and choose to cherish. Not because they've earned it, but because God has first chosen to cherish you. Maybe what that looks like today is an apology. Acknowledging where we have not chosen to cherish and beginning to take steps towards rather than taking steps away. Asking for help, joining a recovery group, going on a much needed date, right? Whatever it is, Take the step, not with the thought that this one thing will change everything in the moment, but with the hope that as those steps turn into sustained steps over time, by God's grace, he might begin to pull the boat back into the dock. And on the far side of that kind of sustained, self-sacrificial love, we might be able to look back together and seeing of all that he's done and remember how far he's carried us through all of the storms and despite all of the unfaithfulness and the lack of cherishing, he has remained faithful to the very end. Let us pray. God, we love you. Father, I thank you first and foremost, Lord, that that you, you decide to cherish us. Lord God, you love us despite who we are. Lord God, that your love was most beautifully and best displayed to us when we were in a place where we were least deserving. Lord God, that you moved towards us while we were in the midst of running away. Lord God, that you held on to us while we were in the midst of letting go. Lord God, that you were gracious and kind towards us while we were in the midst of cursing and and pushing you away. Lord God, I just pray that as we, as we think on the ways in which you have been so patient and so compassionate and so grace-filled and so kind and so tender and so forgiving towards us, that that might give us the strength and the wisdom um, and the humility to extend the same kind of love to those around us, to our friends, to our families, to our spouses, to our children. Lord God, I pray for those in the room who after a sermon like this, it just, it's just painful. Lord God, would you, would you minister to the hearts, Lord God? Would you minister to the marriages? Would you minister to, to the widows, Lord God? Would you minister to those who, uh, who are grieving and who are hurting, Lord God? Would you reach in and just show them that there, there remains an anchor? Lord God, that their, their lives are anchored in you that you see them, that you know them, that you love them, and that there is nothing that can separate them. There's nothing that threatens. There's nothing that can damage the love that you have for your people. Lord God, may may that truth ground all of us today. And may we all move forward out of a place of first receiving of your covenant, keeping love. Lord, we love you. 
It is in your son Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen.